Hi there, and welcome to Good Distinctions. I'm your host, Will Wright, and Good Distinctions are the spice of life. Today, I'm joined by my friend, Simone Riscala. Simone, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Will. I'm so happy to be here with you. Wonderful to have you here. I know we just uh, saw each other about a month ago in Orange County, and that was great for the uh, Hour of the Lady conference. So uh, shout out to TLI and all the great work they're doing. But what I want to talk about today is the fact that we're both Catholic, we're both immigrants, we're both Americans, and there's a lot going on there that I think needs to be unpacked that's not really talked about a lot. So first, let's begin. Simone, who are you? Where are you from? I'll say ancestrally. <laughs> well, I'm a child of immigrants from Cairo, Egypt. So we're Egyptian Armenians. Uh, so that's that's ethnically where we are. We're Armenians who came to Egypt uh, to escape genocide, Armenian genocide, uh, and to have a better life in Egypt. And when that wasn't working out anymore, we came to the United States. So that's that's where I am geographically. Well, and Armenia is one of the oldest Christian nations in the world. Uh, in terms the oldest and sorry, 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 the oldest, the oldest um, Christian nation in the world. And so I imagine your your family when they moved to Egypt were still Christian. And so what was that like? I mean, no um, tensions are a bit high in the Middle East and have been for some time between Christians and Muslims and Jews. And so uh, what how does that enter in? Yes, and sorry for the interruption, Will. It's just that Armenians don't aren't really winning in a uh, economic or geopolitical way. <laughs> we are the world's first official Christian nation in 301 AD. So Armenians converted to Christianity and declared Christianity their national state religion uh, at least a decade before the Roman Empire did with the Edict mm -hmm. of Milan in 311, 312 AD. So that's our big claim to fame besides being the place where Noah's Ark landed in the Bible. So Armenia or Mount Ara is referenced in the scriptures four times. So we're very, mm -hmm. very, very proud of that. And I forgot the question, Will. What was the actual question? <laughs> no problem. So when you, when you moved, when your family moved to Egypt, obviously yeah. Egypt is predominantly Muslim, the adherents of Islam. So how does that work? I know that there's a large contingent of, um, I always get, is it Coptic Christians? Yeah. Coptic yeah. Christians. So, yeah. The largest Christian minority in the Near East is in Egypt. And that's about 10% of Egypt's populations. Egypt's population are largely Coptic Christians, Coptic Orthodox. But there are also minority Christians like Armenians. So... So when we met, um, I just sort of assumed, as most Latin Rite Catholics do, that you were just a Roman Catholic, and then I found out that's not true. So what, what are you, Catholicly speaking, canonically speaking? Yes, canonically, I am Armenian Catholic. So there are 24 East, well, there are 24 Catholic churches. One of them is Roman, the largest one is Roman and Western. But then the rest of the Catholic churches are Eastern churches. One of those is the Armenian Catholics. So that's where I stand canonically. I'm canonically Armenian Catholic. Excellent. And so with, uh, with those different Suiris churches in the East and then the Latin Rite in the West and the other Western Rites, I mean, anyone can go to any of these masses or divine liturgies 
and completely take part. Everyone is completely Catholic. That's the, uh, the one universal church of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. But within that are these different rites and traditions. And, and so was that something that your family practiced while in Egypt and then also in the United States? And what did that practically look like? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think sometimes people hear Catholic Church and they just assume Roman Catholic Church, but that's not true. It's just the Catholic Church. And then there's um, the Roman Church, the Armenian Church, the Chaldean Church, the Maronite Church, the Malkite. I mean, so there are all these. And then within those 24 churches, there's seven different broad rites, which means rituals. So the way in which those uh, churches worship God and the liturgy and sacraments. In the near, it's different in the West, obviously. In the Near East, um, Christians don't have, you know, how in the early church, it's like people didn't really squabble about theology because they're persecuted. And once Christianity was like legalized and then official, then people got into theological debates. And we have the Arian Harris, you know what I mean? You have Mm. like the freedom and the luxury to kind of argue about (laughs) theology once persecutions ended. The persecutions haven't quite ended in the East. Um, mm-hmm. Like, you know, I mean, persecution is the natural state of the church, but because the West largely enjoys uh, incredible, at least up until this point, religious freedom, um, we can kind of have our social media, Facebook, you know, debates. Are you a traditionalist Catholic? Are you progressive? And so we end up having all these really privileged conversations, but in the Middle East and the Near East, because we're a minority, it's not that the- theology doesn't matter, but it's not as, um, uh, I, I don't want to say important, but it's just, it's not as much a source of disunity. And mm-hmm. so my family is a lot of Orthodox, a lot of Catholics. Hmm. Um, okay. So you don't, and and no one really cares that much, you know, so (laughs) my mom is, I mean, you kind of, it's not that you don't care, but you don't care in the same way that Western American Christians do. Um, You know, my mom's side is Orthodox. My mom grew up Greek Orthodox and grandma's Armenian Orthodox. My, uh, My dad's side is Armenian Catholic, Syrian Orthodox. People intermarry between Orthodox and Catholic, and it's it's fine. And you don't you consider yourself in many ways both, right? It does. It, there's not the same kind of like confessional tribalism. Like the tribalism is more ethnic than it is. Yeah, theology. more national. Yeah, I mean that's not mm-hmm. always true. I mean, my great grandmother was like a diehard Melkite Catholic, and my mom tells stories of of how tribal she was in her Melkite Catholicism. But that's not always true. But by and large, you know, it's just so mixed and there is a unity among Christians because there's a, quote, common enemy of Islam that just kind of binds you together in a way. Well, in the so the Melkite Church that you mentioned, the Melkite, Melkite Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church are under the Byzantine umbrella. Yes. Is the Armenian Catholic or Orthodox, that's a different no, system, the, right? Armenians have an entirely different rite. It's the Armenian Catholic Church is the only church in the Armenian rite. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The Byzantines have like, I don't know, seven There's or eight. There's at least eight. seven or eight, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's big. The largest, I mean, the largest rite is the Byzantine rite. So Armenians, like Coptics, uh, Coptic, which is another way to say Egypt's Christians, are 
Orientals. So we gotcha. technically, I mean, they're largely apostolic Orthodox, not Catholic. And so they accept the first three ecumenical councils as do the Copts. So Coptic Orthodox and Armenian Orthodox can go in and out of each other's churches. Byzantines, like the Greek Orthodox, for example, they accept the first seven ancient councils. So they don't have unity with each other. So it's all mm. very, you and people like you and me love that kind of nerdy stuff. We do. Yes, <laughs> we do. <laughs> do you, are you are you oriental do you accept the first three councils the first seven you know catholics have 21 so it just it just that it just depends who's got the unity yeah well and there's there's some significant theological issues in the east especially with arianism and nestorianism and i know like yes. the assyrian church of the east is nestorian and they broke off fairly early uh so how does that mix how is that I, in the mix here I, yeah, my wheelhouse is not the Assyrians, um, although mm -hmm. you're not wrong in, in what you're saying. But so much of the arguments of Christology, like the Armenians, the Armenian Apostolics and the Catholics have signed a joint declaration, same mm. thing with the Copts. So a lot of it is are semantical issues more than actual doctrinal issues, so to speak. I mean, the Armenians were fighting the Persians and couldn't make it to the council, you know, so... Mm. It's like when I was talking to my Orthodox friend and he was talking about toll houses and I said, Oh, you're talking about purgatory. And he was like, shut up. I'm like, well, you know, ah, anyway. Yeah. So yeah. there's definitely some theological issues, but, uh, I would say by and large, it's, it's definitely more ethnic, more national, um, separations than theological. So you moved, your family moved in the sixties, right? The sixties or seventies to the United States, to California. Yes. Yep. Um, and, uh, we'll come back to that in a moment. So just for those listening, I don't think I've ever mentioned this on the show, but I was born in Ontario, Canada as, and I was baptized Anglican and three of my grandparents are from England and one is from new England by way of Ireland. So I, I did one of those DNA things. I am 79% English and 21% Irish. Uh, back like 2000 years or something. It's, uh, I am basically, if you look in the encyclopedia, what is a white person? It would be me. I like just fully ridiculously British. And so with that, I'm baptized Anglican, moved to North Carolina when I was two from Ontario. And uh, my family became Catholic. I, I know I did talk about this in the first episode of Good Distinctions, actually. We joined the, and you'll like this, I joined the church because there was a discount with the school if we were parishioners. So, you know, God gets you one way or another. Um, and so my dad became a Catholic. My mom came back to the practice of the faith. And uh, I didn't really know much else. But when I was in high school and I started questioning things a little bit more rigorously, more academically, maybe, I started looking at uh, sort of more of this Western sort of thing. So all these different Eastern arguments that you're looking at, like, in the West, there's not a long history of disagreements among rights. I mean, there's there's a few heresies that popped up and they were pretty well squashed until the 1500s. And then suddenly of this explosion of Protestantism, which is almost entirely theological issues, um, mm -hmm. except for the Anglicans. Uh, the Anglicans, it was more about Henry VIII and his desire to, you know, marry and remarry as he sees fit. And it's much more political. And so I thought, okay, where did things go off? And it turns out it was 
anyway, uh, long story short, it was Edward the sixth and, uh, and then uh, Queen Elizabeth the first basically denying the sacrificial nature of the mass, which then led to a deficiency in intention and form in the sacrament of holy orders. And that's when they lost um, apostolic succession and ordination and all of this. So I, uh, at any rate, I, I looked at all of these and I thought, okay, well, I'm not Anglican. I am Catholic. I believe in the Eucharist. I love the mass. And I uh, I also really love Anglican hymns, and I guess that's okay. I can still love Anglican hymns. So there was a little bit of um, sort of accepting my patrimony while also remaining firmly rooted in the Catholic Church. But what was very odd to me, and I don't know why this is exactly, I never thought of myself as an American Catholic. I'm a, mm-hmm. I, was, I thought of myself as a, as a Catholic, and I thought of myself as an American because uh, I was naturalized when I was... Um, 14 or 15, I think, when my parents were naturalized. And uh, I think I view the world differently than a lot of my American friends. And I know Mm -hmm. that that you do as well. And we've had this conversation sort of off air. So I'd like to bring it up here is what sort of things do you see um, just right off the bat, like first thing that comes to mind in the American church that maybe needs a course correction. Yeah. I, uh, I don't, I think the church is too busy. Hmm. I think it's too busy. It's very American to be busy. So there's a religious consumerism, ecclesial busyness, bureaucracy. That's like extremely uh, American and Western. And I think is harming attempts at evangelization. That's the first thing that comes to mind. It's a very busy church. Yeah. Well, okay. So talk more about that. What does that look like, like practically on the ground? Yeah. Well, I'll pick on youth ministry. There's Perfect. a lot. As a recovering lot. youth minister, I, I approve this. Yeah. I mean, how many um, church workers are burnt out? Why? Hmm. Um, I, I did a talk once at a women's conference. I said, raise your hand if you're a woman, you're a people pleaser, codependent, too busy at work saying yes to or not work uh, at church saying yes to everything um guilted you know and the, this like sigh of relief and like hands raised i mean we the hmm. church has the church can't be as, as busy as the world and as the country the church should be like very different it should look different it should feel different it should be a different space um entering into a different supernatural reality um so with youth ministry i mean how we feel like we have to this is a very american to entertain the kids we have to keep them hmm. stimulated we have you know um there's a like comp over complicating um and i i don't if that's not necessary i think i really love john paul ii's youth minister jan tiranowski because he was very simple i mean it's a very simple discipleship model he had his core group he mentored them as a team and one-on-one they, he, he broke up the other boys into what he called the living rosary. They each represented a deck of the rosary. Each core member would mentor those boys. Anybody in the youth ministry had access to him personally, but he really poured himself out into like guys like Carol Boitiva, JP two and the others who ended up becoming priests. And then they mentored the others and they would, you know, what John Paul II said that he poured out the riches of his interior life to them. And, and hmm. it's, it's really simple. Um, so I think sometimes in the American church, we really overcomplicate things. 
young kids, they just want to be, they just want to be together. We, we ought to teach them how to pray. Um, we don't have to overcome, not that formation in catechesis isn't important. It certainly is. I think sometimes we wear ourselves thin with trying to entertain or like overly catechize in the sense. And again, catechesis has been atrocious in America. So I don't want to like, again, put that down, but I do think there's this like, um, uh, anxiety that comes with, we've got, we're going to entertain, we got to have the right videos. We have to have the right program. We have to have the workbooks. We have to, and it just church and catechesis. It just can't be like another class, another course, another extracurricular activity. It needs to be like the place to make sense of everything else, not just to be another thing among everything else. That's just one example. Well, and speaking to that, I, I think I've had some of the most fruitful moments in youth ministry was when we did a more intentional small group focused youth ministry where we had the guys right. and the girls separated non-parent adult mentors really pouring into the kids. Yes. And like you say, it wasn't about catechesis. Catechesis happened, but catechesis is a moment in yes. evangelization. Yes, yes, yes. It's yes. part of this broader scope of, as you say, like formation teaching them right. to pray this full human experience. So I think that's definitely missing. But with this busyness, I mean, where did this come from? Was it, do you see it as, I guess two parts of this, do you see it as a response to sort of the 60s and 70s of just terrible catechesis and we need to do better? And so there's a overemphasis or is it more, is it deeper than that where it's the Protestant work ethic just, I think it barreling would be, into us. I'm not sure I've wondered that. Well, I wonder if it's a combination of like the Protestant work ethic that's very capitalistic and consumeristic and money oriented and so productivity oriented hmm. combined with the hyper rationalism of the West that really wants to like think about things and have arguments and philosophical structures for things but doesn't necessarily ha haven't built like a humanity and like a communal life and a shared life together. That's, that's more humane. I think this is why we have a lot of weirdos in the church and a lot of, you know what I mean? <laughs> what, like, what weirdos? Name I names. Know. We have a lot of weirdos that like it, it, that <laughs> happen to be well-formed also happen to be kind of socially awkward because mm, they haven't yeah. been in community. They haven't been, they don't know how to make friends. They don't know how to be normal. Um, they are like a contra culture, contra world argument and argumentative, a certain rigidity. And so it like, it creates the sort of person that's not really attractive to, you know, it's not really attractive period. I think mm. that in large part can be resolved by just cultivating community, authentic friendships, and, and frankly, being more Eastern, like food, community, hanging out, <laughs> simplicity, we don't have to like a, a, a achieve things. We just need to be together more, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I couldn't <laughs> help, but when you were talking, I immediately thought of uh, one of my uh, Eastern priest friends, uh, Eastern Catholic priest who said, Oh, you in the Latin, right? You do love St. Thomas Aquinas a lot, don't you? And I, <laughs> I like, well, yeah, I do. And I was like, and, and he said, and I do too. However, yeah, he does try to define things a lot. And so does the, the West in general. They define, 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 and they can't just sit and be in the mystery. And exactly. I think there's theologically, I, I think that there's definitely that tension between the East and the West that's always been present um, between sort of this overdefining versus perhaps allowing 
too much sort of free form. But I, I think it's interesting because we already sort of touched on this. Historically speaking, the East had to fight against persecution on all sides and especially against persecution from um, Islam. I know one of my friends and I were talking yesterday about how much we love St. John of Damascus hmm. and how like he worked in the government surrounded by Muslims as this devout Christian who brilliantly expounded the faith. Uh, but he had to do so so well that they didn't try to kill him for it and that he could still continue to do his business and be uh, an upstanding member of the government. That's a, an amazing thing to accomplish. Yeah. In the East or in the West, rather, like folks like St. Thomas Aquinas, who I love dearly, writes about Islam. He, he never met a Muslim in his life. Mm. So how do you speak about something that you literally know nothing about other than third-hand knowledge? Yeah. Um, Suppose yeah. it's secondhand knowledge, but at that point, it probably is third hand. And there, there's there, there's that, but there's also the there's the persecution. There's also the poverty. So hmm. the poverty of the East is also what keeps the East more humble, more interdependent, less individualistic, more communal, more humane. In a way that the West, I, I, I again, I think about these things obsessively all the time. Like, simply can't. If you're mm. if if you've reached a level of, of personal and collective wealth and you haven't kind of tasted poverty and tasted humility in that way, you just don't need people as much. Or there you, yes, you do, but you're at, you're not as in touch with your human need. You're at, not as in touch with your humanity. Mm. And and that's also, I think, what um is something that the West can, I don't know how you learn from that from the East, except, except making really, really intentional decisions um, against kind of this um, bubbles in paradise, very bougie Catholicism. That's really hard to avoid in, in the United States. Um, yeah. Well, and I've seen a, I, I think that touches on what one of the things I wanted to bring up, which I think is the, supposed dichotomy between orthodoxy versus orthopraxy that yeah. that you have this sort of well i know what the truth is but then on the other side of things so to speak the other political side of things whatever um you know somebody's saying oh don't worry about so much about that theology stuff but we really need to be engaged in social justice and making sure that we're serving the poor and I'm thinking okay well we're kind of all called to that we should be doing this regardless we should have truth and charity we should be serving the poor where they are right near us um because that's the thing is like we're we live in one of the most affluent countries mm -hmm. in the most affluent country in the world and yet there are people that go to bed hungry every night it, it's mind-boggling how yeah. you can go one block down a street in some of the larger cities in our country and it changes drastically um, yeah. I would say that this is so a caveat just based on something you were saying a moment ago, I feel like in the South, cause I grew up in North Carolina, there is a giant emphasis on hospitality. Like Southern mm -hmm. hospitality is a real thing and it's beautiful. Um, and I think it's something where I definitely have a different approach than a lot of people that I even grew up around. I went to a Catholic school 
But until I was about eight or nine, we lived in a mobile home because we didn't have any money. That's why we moved to North Carolina. Um, my dad couldn't work for a couple of years. My mom was a nurse, but she kept getting bumped off shifts from nurses with more seniority in Canada. So, I mean, we, we didn't really have anything. And I am so grateful for that because it, it gave me a different perspective on material things that I think, I hope I can keep for the rest of my life and pass on to my children in some way, even though, uh, we're certainly doing a lot better off than I was at their age. Yeah. But the other one other thought, and then I'll stop, I'll shut up and let you talk more. But uh, I went to Haiti on a mission trip for a week and I saw exactly what you're talking about. These people had nothing, absolutely nothing, materially speaking, but they had one nice set of clothes and they would Mm -hmm. get as dressed up as they possibly could and walk maybe two, three miles to go to mass every Sunday. And it was the most joyous, beautiful thing I've ever seen. And the things that they were dealing with were incredibly intense, spiritually speaking. I mean, there's definitely a lot of voodoo going on down there, but like the spiritual warfare is very in your face. The manifestations of of demonic things is very present. Uh, I mean, people like cartwheeling backwards away from the monstrance, um, contorting and and it's it's otherworldly. It's crazy. Whereas mm-hmm. in the United States, why would Satan need to go to all those lengths? Because we're all so damn distracted anyway. Yeah, he's not working. Exactly. Exactly. So I think it does speak very much to what you're saying about being very, very busy. Yeah. There's so how great, do we cultivate I mean, that? How do we cultivate hospitality? How do we cultivate um, sort of this true sense of living the Christian life? Yeah. And I, I want to be, uh, you know, I don't want to just naysay the West and, you know, the intellectual life. I spend my life and we're, 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 we're talking on a podcast, right? So you and I are. We're both nerds. It's very we're clear. Both, life yeah. of mine and my, my conversion came through intellectual conversion. And then it, it was sealed communally through two lay ecclesial movements of the church, which is, I think, an authentic fruit of the Second Vatican Council. So I don't want to, I mean, we need, and I'm, I'm, I'm always astounded, um, when I am talking to my Eastern and Orthodox friends, how poorly they're, they are formed and how mm. grateful I am for the Catholic Western intellectual tradition. I mean, I'm, I'm very grateful to it. And I think the East needs more of that, certainly, as well as, you know, the, um, those who are true missionary disciples in the West, that kind of American Catholic apostolic zeal is really mm. incredible. I mean, we have the Bible in your podcast. I follow Mike Schmidt. Like we have really great things that mm-hmm. both the marketing, consumerism, American Catholic intellectual thing has given us. It's, I don't want to downplay that at all. I just think John Paul II is right when he says we've got to breathe with both lungs. And and we do. And the East also needs to breathe with her, with her Western lung as well. So we need each other. Um, but... That being said, how do we deal with this the spiritual poverty, which has reached its its fantastic heights in uh, the epidemic of loneliness? You know, Mother Teresa is saying that this is the poorest America is the poorest country in the world. So mm-hmm. um, yes, the East needs the intellectual life that the West pro- proposes, but it but she didn't say that they were the poorest. They are materially poor, but we are the poorest spiritually. 
And I think that it's just going to, this is what I'm just going to keep talking about um, my whole life is cultivating the virtue of leisure, which you have to, I think in the West be extremely intentional and almost violent about protecting your leisure time and not leisure time, meaning like necessarily like idle or fun time or amusement time or entertainment time, but leisure as a, as how Pieper defines it, Joseph Pieper, a Thomist, um, that mental and spiritual, you know, that attitude of being receptive to reality, uh, that spirit mm -hmm. of peace, of calmness, of openness, cultivating that interior disposition is what's going to allow us to be able to hear God's voice. So let's, let's go back to youth ministry. If our youth ministry programs are just keeping them busy with the things of God instead of teaching them how to be about God himself. Mm. Who cares? It might as well not be about God or religion. Cause then, you know what I mean? It's to, we've got to do what first John Paul II asked us to do, which is to have the parishes to be schools of prayer. But he loved his youth minister, Jan Ternowski and kept a picture of him on his desk his whole life. JP two did because he, opened up again. He said, he opened up for me the riches of the interior life. He taught him how to pray. I, as, I'm sorry. Do our, our parishes teaching parishioners or our kids how to hear God's voice, how to pray? Mm. I'm going to go with no. And for this reason, I think we have to, we have to do, we can't just be doing God things. We have to be the sort of people who know how to hear God so that we can become godly people. I think that's, that's the big my big sales pitch, Will. <laughs> well, and it's it's interesting you brought up Joseph Pieper. I mean, anybody who's listening, if you haven't read Leisure as the Basis of Culture, like, you know, go read it immediately. Um, I'm rereading a Joseph Pieper anthology. Yeah, feel free to put so my good. article on it because, sorry to interrupt Yeah, you. we'll do. I'll put if it you, in the notes. Yeah, and I, you know, I have a litany of Leisure and a biblical examination of conscience on Leisure. Just in case you don't have time to read Pieper, like, just start with the article. Awesome. And then, you know, sorry to interrupt you, Will. Yeah, no worries. No, that's that's great because leisure is absolutely vital to us as human beings. If we don't have that, then we aren't living the Christian life. I mean, God specifically set aside the seventh day for rest because he knows that we need that. He made us that way uh, with our body and soul that we need to have that refreshment in him, right? It's not just right. sort of idleness, like you said. Um, also an interesting thought, I, I had this conversation with a, a, co a colleague yesterday about, you know, I, I, I said, uh, I was being a little dramatic. I was like, man, I can't stand Thomas. And he was like, what are you talking about? Aren't you basically a Thomas? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I love St. Thomas, but I'm not a Thomas. Like Thomas need to go away. We can be lovers of St. Thomas's approach. But if you ask St. Thomas, like what he was, he makes it very clear. He was a lover of the word. He was a, a scripture teacher. He was a, a Bible teacher. That was what he did at the University of Paris. I mean, everyone knows him for the Summa Theologica and the Summa Contra Gentilis and all the rest, but like his scripture commentaries are second to none. And it's all about being just imbibing the word. And yeah. that comes, that's a source of leisure. It ought to Absolutely. be, right? I mean, yes. being, being well, like, people of the word. Yeah. Lexio Divina. I mean, that's, it, like leisure activated into contemplation and prayer and, and union. I was in Poland um, with some Dominicans who you could say are actually Thomas um, <laughs> who were making fun of 
Thomas, you know? <laughs> I love it. I think through Thomas who are like, I, this is a good distinction. There are Thomas. <laughs> there there's Thomas and then there's Thomas. Right? We want to just be, yeah. be normal. Back to that theme. <sighs> yeah. I, and I think it speaks to the broader issue in the United States. We have this issue of wanting to be on a team. And I, I know yeah. we've talked about like the East and having like these ethnic and national um, squabbles. And I know the Orthodox Church tried to have a council on the island of Crete a few years ago. And within a week, only one nation remained or one church remained because what's binding them together? There is no Byzantine emperor anymore. There's no uh, right. recognition of the Holy Father as the the Pontifex Maximus. So it's like, that's, that's one issue. Fine. But in the United States, we have this issue of tribalism where we care so much about like what sports team we like or what school we went to or whatever, like to a disproportionate level. And I've seen that. And another colleague of mine, I, by the way, I love working in a high school with really smart, holy Orthodox people. So we have great conversations. Um, but one of my friends was saying, you know, it seems to me like a lot of these squabbles in the church, in the American church, are nothing more than just applied tribalism. It's like, well, I want my team to win. Absolutely. Right? It's Latin mass only folks or the the social justice warrior types or whatever it might be. It's like, well, if I if we don't win, then that means we don't win. And that has to be the goal. We have to win and everyone else oh. has to lose. You just brought up another point. This is another great point is that this is where Christians have become more activists than contemplatives because of exactly mm -hmm. what you're saying, right? We're activists. We are about the TLM. We are about the social justice, whatever. We are totally. And that's a spirit of, of activism that is much easier to um, fall into, I think, when you are in a very free, rich Dare I say privileged climate? Do you want to hear my dreams? Well, there's my dream. Did you just did you just call out my white privilege? Anyway, yeah, let me hear about your dreams. No, I mean we. I, that's the thing is that like every I get so sad when I see people obsessed with ecclesial politics and these arguments. Yeah. We we look so bad. It's such a scandal. I have women that I'm talking to who are thinking about becoming Catholic. And then they hear so-and-so influencer talking about women shouldn't work, you know, and, 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 and thinking that that's dogma, and that's dogma and not like, and they're confused because they think that because this so-and-so influencer said this or that, that that's what Catholic dogma teaches. And that means that I can't become a Catholic. And these people aren't converting because these are the loudest voices because of what you just said. Right. This like applied unessential tribalism within ecclesial politics. So anyway, my dream, you sighed really quick. Do you want to comment before I tell you all about my dreams? <laughs> no, I was sighing because I know exactly what you're talking about. And anyone who's paying attention knows exactly who you're talking about. So I'm not going to mention the names. I've already mentioned one of the names anyway on an earlier episode and I'm not calling people out anymore. That's a goal of mine. I'm definitely not mentioning the scourge to American Catholicism that Taylor Marshall or other people like Timothy Gordon. Anyway, I'm not mentioning those names because that would be absurd. Oh my gosh. It's, 
It, it, no, but and- seriously, um, I have no problem calling them out because here's the thing. It's not about bad mouthing them. I'm bringing it up because if you're listening and you're like, well, I love Taylor Marshall. Listen, I watched everything he put out for like two years and it did nothing good for me in the long run. Um, it was fine for a while, but then I got really bitter. And I, I've said the same thing, I think, on the air about um, Daily Wire. Like, I love the Daily Wire commentators, but I just can't do it anymore. Yeah. But I think um, folks like like Timothy Gordon, it's interesting. And I want to I'll bring him up specifically because he was on Pints with Aquinas, huge platform. So this isn't like some sort of backroom conversation. It's very public where he's talking about his book on women working. But what he was drawing from was the Council of Trent, but it was the Roman Catechism's application of the Council of Trent. And he was misquoting it. Like mm-hmm. I had to go back and read it and look at it again. And it's, it was a prudential judgment at the time in a totally different cultural context. And he was trying to apply it to 21st century. And like you said, like, first of all, that's problematic on academic grounds and he should know better. Yeah. But if we, if we zoom forward to today, the fact that that's leading people away from Christ is scandalous. It's awful. Yeah. Um, and so again, it's, and I brought this up multiple times on the show. It's not about judging people. Like I don't judge Timothy Gordon. I don't judge Taylor Marshall. Um, I judge their actions though. And I judge the fruit of their actions because these are terrible, terrible things that are happening when people leave the church or don't come into the church because somebody's sharing their wrong, erroneous opinion. Yeah. And elevating that's horrible. doctrine and dogma. Yes, it is. And that's exactly what good distinctions is all about. I mean, this is why this channel exists is to hopefully make these distinctions between what is faith and morals versus what is prudential judgment to help people come closer to Jesus because the church, we are church of Jesus Christ. We're not a church of causes. We're not activists. We should be contemplative. Right. Um, So anyway, just yes, everything that you said, I'm 110% (laughs) behind you, but you're doing what you're doing and uh, will. And yeah, it's, it's painful. And I kind of lose my temper every time I get an Instagram or text message from especially a woman who's like, wait a minute, I was, I was thinking about converting or I, and, and I didn't realize it was Catholic doctrine that I'm not able to have a job. I'm like, where did you hear that? <laughs> you know, but anyway. not exactly where you heard that. I, yeah. well, okay. So I do think it's worth like 10 seconds. I think it's worth 10 seconds to just elucidate people on what is actually true there. What oh. the church has always said, as far as my understanding, correct me if you have a different understanding is, it should be such that ideally a woman shouldn't have to work if she doesn't want to because her husband should be able to provide for her. Like in, in the context of a marriage, like that's, that's my understanding anyway of the council of Trent is that if you have a man and a woman who are married, the, the woman should not have to work if she doesn't want to. And that's really not about the couple so much as the broader society. Like the fact that we have to have two incomes in order to provide for a family in the United States is a problem. Um, The fact that, yeah, I mean, I I think that's really what it's about. Anyway, is that your understanding of it? Yeah. I mean, I think John Paul II, I think it's Evangelion Vitae where he's, you know, saying that because 
especially in, in when that wife is also a mother and that that mm -hmm. the child's dignity comes from largely the gaze of the mother right and that mm -hmm. if um she's unable to to be present and to attach and to dignify her child that economic systems should be set up such that women's dignity and mother's dignity and children and family don't don't suffer but again that's not doctrine and dogma that's 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 prudential judgment and like you said i mean how many people have that privilege very right. few i mean i you know again my parents don't read church documents but my dad you know to his credit always said well your mother i always said if she wanted to work she could but it, it, you know it, she, i would never want her to if she didn't want to and i was going to work very hard to make sure that she could do whatever she needed to do as a woman for her human flourishing because her human flourishing whether that means working or not helps the marriage and helps the children and the family so that is up to the married couple and up to the family and largely is determined by practical matters bingo so again it kind of you don't you don't even need to read trent to be told what common sense can yeah. tell you don't be a weirdo like we have you know 80 percent of women who seek abortions are low income i mean yeah. this is i love gabor mate you know he he's a secular trauma-informed physician and he says things that if i had time i would put into an article and compare it to what john paul ii says about women are more three times more likely to be chronically ill than men because women are society society's shock absorbers and so because the feminine hmm. genius because women are relational, communicative, they're society shock absorbers, they absorb more. And because the same economic and workforce demands are made on them as men, they're more sick because they aren't men. And because there is something that they contribute that's the spiritual and non-tangible, right? Those are the kind of thing, conversations that I think are very interesting. How do we set up societies and structures according to the gospel so that the, like, the feminine genius and the masculine genius are respected, honored, privileged, um, and just help to flourish. Having these kind of like very low level, silly conversations about whether women should work or not, as if we can paint with that broader brush, I just don't have time or patience for Will. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I'm, I'm completely with you. It, it is a lot about prudential judgment. It's about common sense, but it's also about the fact that we're talking about structures that are broader than any one country. So, it's not incidental. It's not a side conversation to talk about broad societal structures because what we're dealing with is what the church has been grappling with in large part since the enlightenment, but especially the last 150 years about liberalism, democracy, yeah, right. um, and these sorts of things. Like, does that actually lead to human flourishing or is it a counterfeit? Right. And in a lot of ways, I think that the United States I don't want to get canceled like immediately for saying this, but like, who cares? I liberalism is against the church in yeah. a lot of ways. There's a lot of good things that came from the enlightenment. There's a lot of good things that come from individual reflection and autonomy and all these things. But if it comes at the expense of the communal dimension, if it comes at the expense of authentic relationships, you, you know, you're going to have a bad day, uh, maybe a yeah. few bad days. And it's, the structure that we have being built on, and this is some I, like 
for those listening, I've taught American history. I love the United States of America. I love our founding documents. I think the Federalist Papers have some gems in them. I think the Declaration of Independence is awesome. I love the Constitution. But I could imagine something that comes along later that's better. Which, if you say that in some circles in the United States, uh, they'd want to shoot you. And yeah. I don't understand that. Like, I, I understand that, like, for example, and I'll, I'll put this out there, like, I don't like to get into politics too much on here, but I'll just say, like, I think it's very clear if anyone's listened to me for any length of time, I'm not a Democrat um, because I can't be. I can't be today. The, the party has gone so far to the left. It's not the party of 50 years ago. I'll put it that way. I'm a registered Republican because in the state of Arizona, you have to be a registered Republican to vote in the primary. So three years, I'm an independent, and then I register Republican and I vote, and then I register back as independent, which maybe that's dumb, but it's what I do, whatever. But one of the platform, one of the platform points of the Republican Party is American exceptionalism. Like this, it's actually in there specifically. And I've, I've struggled with that. Um, in, I've struggled with a lot of things on both sides of the political aisle. Um, but I, I struggle with this idea of American exceptionalism because on the one hand, as an immigrant, I am incredibly grateful to this country. I'm grateful for all of the um, blessings that I've received from the American system. I've uh, the autonomy to chase my dream, so to speak, and study what I want to study which incidentally is theology. So this has been a good system for me um, and history and, and all these other things. There's a lot of freedom, like true freedom. It allows me to pursue authentic humanity, human flourishing and authentic leisure uh, in a way that many other countries simply you can't. So that's, that's great. But there's also a lot of serious problems in, in the United States and also in the way that we interact with other countries. Um, and like having taught us history, I, I can bring up all sorts of different things all throughout the history of this country, but it seems like, and maybe this is uh, a little too overdramatic, but maybe not. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. I feel like a lot of Catholics would say who are American would say that I'm an American Catholic. And I, I don't think that's, um, the right order. I don't think it's just semantics. I think it's really a prioritization. It's saying I'm an American and incidentally, I'm also a Catholic. And I find that incredibly problematic because when I view the church, I don't view the church as an American first and foremost. I view the church as a whole and then think of my perspective because I'm American. And I don't know if that makes sense, but anyway, what, what are your thoughts on that? It makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. Uh, and it's, it's, it's something I think about often. How much does the church look more like American values, whether they're Christian informed or not, than it does Christianity? So I mm -hmm. think everything you're saying is legitimate. Are we trying to conform the church to Americanism, right? Or does America dictate what we decide to emphasize and value in the church? I think the same is true with orthodoxy. I was in my first post, when I went to go study theology, it was literally to take two years off 
to go get formed, to know what the good life is, and then to go back to my normal life. Of course, it didn't happen. I entered this church world thing. But my first job out of theology school, it was, you'll really appreciate this. It's it's not in the context of Americanism versus the Catholic faith, but I was shocked to, I was, first of all, I was like, oh, I'm not in Southern California anymore. I'm in Virginia. People are actually like faithful here. You know, they, they, <laughs> they believe uh, they're Orthodox. Um, but then I realized that they weren't Orthodox Christians, meaning holding to right belief. Yeah. Of course, I'm not I'm painting with a broad brush, but I'm talking about the people that I met. They're not Orthodox because the church teaches Orthodoxy. They are accidental Orthodox accidentally orthodox they like being catholic because being catholic agrees with their understanding of what they think truth is hmm. and that's not catholic at all we, we're called to like religious assent right so we are orthodox we have we believe in right practice right belief because we're followers of jesus this is what jesus teaches we don't follow jesus because we see that he happens to agree with me and that's what was finding <laughs> they were accidentally orthodox i don't know if that makes sense but that was like weird to me because i'm like oh you you agree with all the church's teachings but you agree with them because they agree with you not be not because you're catholic in in, yeah, in, in the in the census fee day sort of thing it's interesting because i i've thought about this a lot i mean i i um a few years ago i tried to start like a blog that was more politically oriented um, from a Catholic perspective, but um, trying to share sort of conservative principles in a way that was non-confrontational, in a way that wasn't judgy, um, right. trying to kind of reset the dialogue. Yeah. And uh, it didn't really go anywhere and whatever, but it did help me sort of think through a lot of things. And I found that a lot of people were doing exactly what you're saying. They were accidentally Orthodox because they were conservatives yeah, who right. a lot of their beliefs sort of coincided. It was like a coalition. It yeah. was saying, all right, well, you know, I'm pro-life and the church is pro-life and I sure like limited government. So uh, yeah, the church seems to be all about that. Um, but what I found is like when I was in high school, I was, I was very left of center. I was progressive. I was um, very liberal, like adamantly vocally. I was pro-choice. I was, I had no problem with gay marriage, all these different things. And when I got to the University of North Carolina and met a lot of um, diehard communists, basically, I mean, like avowed communists, I thought eh, I should rethink my positions a little bit because these people scare the heck out of me. And meanwhile, I was also going to the Newman Center and there was a lot of great people there who questioned me on a lot of my beliefs and thoughts. And so I started thinking through things more and I realized that, you know, um, I need to sort of reevaluate what I actually believe and I need mm -hmm. to start from the church. And so I did that. And so I started learning more about like Catholic social teaching and what that led me to was that I cannot embrace libertarianism. Yeah. Um, because that's just not open to a Catholic. I cannot embrace the modern democratic party because of a bunch of different issues, even though they have a lot of things that I think are in line with the Catholic Church's teaching, by and large, the really important preeminent issues, especially the, like abortion, euthanasia, marriage, um, it seems like more and more is becoming problematic. 
and it it didn't make me turn like i said i'm not a fan of the republican party as such but what i am in favor of is a more federalist limited government constitutional conservatism precisely because i'm catholic and not the other way around which was a really interesting thing so it's not that we can't have these overlapping beliefs but i think everybody listening should sort of do another do their own personal inventory and be like you know why do i hold to what i believe is it because my parents raised me this way is it because i actually believe these things um and at the end of the day is it because the church has informed me informed me like have i been formed in such a way that i am living in line with what i'm called to by the gospel and the, and and the church because of Jesus mm-hmm. because of Jesus because that's because that's his method. Amen. So any uh, any final thoughts? I know that we have a hard uh, break for both of us. Actually, we have things to to go and do. We're both we both actually need to work on leisure a little bit. Um, anyway, <laughs> just like to talk about it, but do we commit? Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. It's tough. Um, yeah, but are- any. Any final thoughts? Say you were you're in a room with uh, you know five Americans. They've been here since birth. Their families go back all the way to the Mayflower, and they're Catholic and they want to follow Jesus, but they're following in falling into a lot of these pitfalls, and they don't see the world in such a way that they're actually living out the principle of of solidarity. And you had thirty seconds. What would you say to them? Solidarity of 30 seconds. Goodness. Uh, honestly, tap into your Eastern roots, tap, tap into it. Um, really see where there is a hyper emphasis on belief or friendship with someone based on shared belief, as opposed to like, who's your neighbor? Hmm. Do you, you know them? Where are you really needy and dependent? Where can you foster a more humane existence in a culture and a world that is more techno- more more technology based, more isolated, more inhumane? Because um, at some point we're going to see a church that's talking less and living more. And I really, I I'll, will be dead probably will before this happens. But when Pope Benedict, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger in, in his book, What It Means to Be a Christian, says how far we are from a world in which people no longer need to be taught about God because he's present among us. Are you the sort of person that's fostering the presence of God among you and your tribe and your people? Or are we just kind of talking about it? Beautiful. Well, that's as good a place to end as we can hope for. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. And uh, thanks for coming on. Simone, it's wonderful to talk to you. And I I hope to have you back on again to talk about something else, maybe get controversial on something else. (laughs) Rant on something else. It's always, it's always a pleasure, my friend. Always. Beautiful. Well, for those listening, uh, you can find out more about uh, what Simone does with Endow Women's Group. She's the director of program growth. We'll put some of that in the show program notes or the the show notes, uh, as well as a link to your article on leisure as the basis of culture and uh, a few other things to help yeah. us grow in leisure. Please. And, and uh, that's a great, a great apostolate to grow in leisure. A great one. And uh, for those listening, 
If you haven't yet, please go to gooddistinctions.com, become a subscriber. You can subscribe for free and get everything that's put out, a lot of written content, a lot of video content, and uh, just love to have you on there. You can send me an email at gooddistinctions at gmail.com if you have any questions, thoughts, comments, confusion. If you want to send a message on to Simona, I'd be happy to do so. And uh, it's wonderful to have you here and listening and watching. Please share it with your friends and family, and uh, we'll see you again next time. Simone, thanks so much. Thanks, Will. Bye.